Well, it is quite obvious from the title that I've given the message this morning, as is indicated in the back of your bulletin, that the title came, as it usually does in most of my messages, right from the text itself in verse 6. Do you wish to get well? And many of you probably are here this morning and say, man, I never felt so good before in my life. I feel great. So, well, hold on to your hats. Because we might talk a little bit physical, but how well are you doing spiritually as well? Let me ask you that right at the beginning. We have now come to the third sign that John is preaching in his letter. And uh, for the benefit of those of you who have not been with us with our study, as we're going through, we will see again this morning why I say the third sign. But I want to prompt your thinking immediately this morning with what is common, I believe, in the thinking of us as people today. I think it permeates our society. Is it not true that if a miracle were to be performed, if right now outside of these doors you and I witnessed someone who we knew for 38 years had been lame, and we looked outside that window and saw that person stand up and walk, and we knew without question that that person could not do that before, and instantaneously responded, is it not true that in our thinking would be, see, if people see a miracle, they will believe God. They will flock to Jesus if they saw Jesus out there doing that. They will certainly want to believe the gospel. That's the way we think. That if we saw something like that, if a miracle were to happen, that's why in last week's sermon, we noticed that I used the text where even the person in hell said, I have my brothers on earth, send someone back from the dead. If they see it, they'll believe. That's the way we think. We're going to see today, and as we continue through the gospel account of John, that you know what, folks? Just the opposite is what happens biblically. The opposite of what we think. Rather than believe, this text is going to be the beginning, and I'll comment on that in just a second again. The beginning of hostility toward Christ. Because of the miracle. Rather frightening. Let me just cover this right away and briefly. We need to understand what the purpose of miracles were for during the time of Christ. And I'll only turn you to one text for time's sake. We'll get a lot of things to look at in this particular passage. I will be addressing several areas because the text does. But in Matthew chapter 11, if you keep your finger in John, just go there for one second. This is the primary purpose of the miracles during the time of Christ. And to give it to you before we look at the verses, listen, this is the purpose. It is to authenticate it is to verify. It is to let you know that indeed Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Messiah. And just as one small text of evidence, in Matthew chapter 11, at this time John's in prison. I'll pick it up in verse 2. And what we read is this. Now when John, when John in prison heard the works of Christ, he heard the works of Christ, that was a miracle. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? In other words, are you really the Messiah? John, remember, in our text, had said, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He had already pointed to Christ. Now that he's in prison, he's got some doubts as a human being. Is that really? I want to be absolutely sure. What is the evidence that Christ said? Look at the verse, verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. Explain that to me. Okay, verse 5. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. What is he saying? Go back and tell John that I was authenticated by what I did. That's all you've got to tell him, and he'll know that I was the Messiah. So when we think of miracles, we think in purposes for us. What can I gain? What can I get out of it? But the purpose of the miracles that Christ did on earth was primarily to authenticate who he was so that people would know who he was. 
We think if people see miracles, they're going to flock to Jesus. That's not true. In chapters 5 through 7, you can go back to John, we are going to begin a shift in the book. What do you mean a shift? In the first four chapters, we've seen curiosity regarding Christ. Who is this man? Even Nicodemus, you remember, came to him. That is now going to turn to outright opposition to him. The more miracles he does, the more opposition he's going to get. Strange to our thinking. In fact, if you don't believe this, let me just give you a summary to prepare you of just a few things you're going to see over the next few months. What is going to happen right here in this text is he's going to be accused, while doing a miracle, of breaking the law, particularly of the Sabbath. Later on, he is going to be abandoned by many in chapter 6. If that's not bad enough, they will eventually charge him in this book with having a demon. They'll say he does those miracles by Satan. That's where they're going. And if that's not enough, by the time we come to the end of the book, they're going to say, crucify him. All because he what? Authenticates who he is. We think a miracle won't do that. That's exactly what happens when God's at work. People's heart are hard, hearts are hard. We need to realize that people do not... Don't kid yourself. We think and talk all the times about all these people outside the doors that are just waiting to flock to God. The more evidence that God gives them, we think will bring them to God. That's why you've heard it for two weeks in a row and you hear it again right now at the beginning of the message. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Give the gospel and people will come to Christ. Don't worry about your fancy words. Don't worry about trying to point them to miracles thinking that will convince them. We're going to see that evidence in the Word of God. Let's get right into it. First, we look at the conditions that we find in the text in John chapter 5. The conditions are found in verses 1 through 6. Let me give you a summary in just two words to let you know what's coming and hold on to these two words for the entire message. What is that? We're going to see in this situation the condition is that this man is absolutely helpless. Absolutely, second word, hopeless. This man has no help. This man has no hope. There are many people in this world that have no hope. Many people in this world who don't even realize it, but they're totally helpless. And you're going to see as we go through this, this is exactly the type of people Christ is interested in. Not those who are filled with pride. Not those who think they should be saved. But the ones who know that they are helpless. The ones who know that they are without hope. Unless God himself intervenes. He says, after these things, right away in verse 1. Let's pick it apart. Verse 1, after these things. That's already been seen in chapter 3, verse 22. I won't turn back there, just give you that reference for your notes. There's no indication of time. He doesn't tell us. And I wanted to make a distinction at this stage of the book. I could have done it earlier, but it fits better in this context. This is distinct from the expression that we saw in chapter 2, verse 12, in which it says, after this. When he says, after this in Scripture, it happened very shortly or next. But when you see the expression, after these things, there's a gap there. How big a gap? We don't know for sure, but we know that there's a gap. I can help you with this one. This is a longer gap than you would realize before you go from chapter 4, verse 54, to chapter 5, verse 1. So as we're reading the Bible, we need to realize what's going on. Explain what you mean, Pastor Dan. From chapter 4, verse 54, to chapter 5, verse 1, guess what fits in there? Let me tell you to save you time. Mark it down, check me out. All of Mark chapter 1 through 9. All of it. Most of Luke chapter 4 through 9. All of that took place between these two verses. That's why he says after these things. If you want a summary of it, go to Matthew chapter 4, just to see what I'm talking about. Go to Matthew 4 for just a second. It's important when we're reading the Word of God to know what we're dealing with. 
He is going where? From Galilee. Isn't that what we left him off? Look at John chapter 4, verse 44. Or as you're turning to Matthew, just listen. These is what he performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. That's where he is. When you come to chapter 5, verse 1, what's happening? He's going up to Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 4 kind of gives us a good summary. That's why I just want to spend time looking at that. Verses 23 and 24. Look at it. When Jesus was going about in all Galilee, what happened there? Teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing of every kind of disease, of every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him went into all of Syria. What happened? They brought to him all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains, demonics, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him. So there's a lot of activity that's going on between verse 54 and chapter 5, verse 1. And you say, well, why do you point that out to us? You see why I've been emphasizing in the book of John this? Why did John choose the miracles that he chose? It was our first message on the book. Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. I'm not going to turn there. He said, many signs Jesus did. But the ones that I've recorded in these book have a specific purpose. What are they? So that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. So the miracles that John is selecting have a specific purpose. That's why there's a lot that happened, and he's only picking this one as the third one. Now, why pick this one? Well, I can't be sure, but let me give you a couple of quick reasons, and they're quick. One, I would say, because it supports what I just told you. It supports the fact that he wants to show them that Jesus is the Son of God. We're not going to get there today, but in John chapter 5, look at verse 18 at the end. He made himself equal with God. How did he do that? By calling God his Father. This miracle leads to that conversation, and when we get there to the message, that's going to answer all your critics, such as Jehovah Witnesses, and other people who say, well, he's the Son of God, but he's not God. Wait till we get to verse 18. He specifically puts this miracle in here so we really understand who Christ is. Secondly, it demonstrates the sovereignty of God and the grace of God. Here we've got a person that is absolutely helpless and hopeless, and God intervenes. Thirdly, I believe it's the shift that I already told you. We get the beginning of the hostility to Christ. And maybe, a fourth reason I'd give you, it's to demonstrate how Jesus... Now listen carefully to this. I believe to demonstrate how Jesus may bless a life and yet that person never gets saved. It is very possible for people to come to Christ for a blessing, for what I can get and never really come to Christ spiritually. Yes, you can already know where I'm going. You're going to see this guy doesn't even know who the one is that healed him. And not only that, you're going to find out, after he does find out, rather than praising God or ever thanking him, he goes back to report it. So the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're the ones that want him. He never even talks to Christ about salvation at all, about any spiritual need. We'll see that. All right, verse 1. So these things, that's all that's in that first expression after these things. There was a feast. What feast? I don't know. You fight with the commentaries. There's all kinds of feasts. They went up for the Passover. I know that. They went up for the Feast of Ten. We don't know. That's the bottom line. Nobody knows. They're all guessing no matter what it is. And I understand for those of you that have a Greek text in front of you, I know the article's there, but that still doesn't define it because there's several feasts that use the article in the New Testament. So we don't know what the feast is. What do you mean he went up to Jerusalem? Well, just for the benefit of you for one second, he deals with elevation. It was always seen as going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was on a hill. So even though they're north in Galilee and they're going south to Jerusalem, they're going up. And the reason they're going up is because of the elevation. So that explains what he means there in verse 1. So, all right, Jesus is leaving Galilee. Some time has passed. A lot of activity has gone on. He's going up to Jerusalem. And we come to the location in verse 2. In verse 2, where is it? The pool of Bethesda in verse 2. Now, this is rather interesting, and I'm only going to pass it on very quickly to you. Interesting to me because the skeptics had doubted the word of God because of this verse. 
Why? Because they could not find any pool in Bethesda. And first of all, they couldn't even find a name by Bethesda. And just so you know, as usually is the case, always the case, archaeologically has not, archaeological discoveries have not only discovered the name, but they have discovered the pool. And right now it's in the old city near St. Anne's Church, for those of you that have visited that area. It's known as Stephen's Gate or the Sheep Gate, and it's still there today, and we have pictures of it now. But people that doubted the Word of God, archaeology again has proved it. It had five porches or covered columns. That's the idea behind it. And I want you to notice in verse 3, just the first part of the verse right now, in these lay a multitude, a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. What a picture. Is it true that these are not helpless people, hopeless people, and there's many of them that were sick? Yes. Now, why were they there? We'll learn that in verse 7 in just a second. But the second thing that must be addressed is a subject called textual criticism, and most people wouldn't even address this, but I will. What do you mean textual criticism? In chapter 3, some of you may be looking at a study Bible and have a footnote on verses 3 and 4. Some of you may be looking at a modern English Standard Version or a New American Standard and don't even find those verses there. Why is that? Verses 3, the rest of the verse, after the word withered, and verse 4 are not in the oldest manuscripts. The manuscripts. In fact, there is none prior to 400 or A.D. 400. There is no textual evidence for these verses. What are we saying? They are probably not genuine. Why are they there then, Pastor Dan? Scribal notes, scribal errors. You say, well, well that kind of shakes my faith in the Bible, if those verses probably should not be there. First of all, it ought to encourage you, if you have a footnote in your Bible that tells you that most of the manuscripts, that's because they know it's no scriptural evidence. Don't worry. Why? There are no originals on any ancient manuscripts or documents. Moreover, let me just give you this as a passing, there are more copies of New Testament writings, listen, than any other ancient writing, period. Did you know that? We have more New Testament copies than any writing. And to put that in perspective for you, it used to be five. We have over 6,000, 6,000 Greek, either entirety or portions thereof, of the New Testament. You want a comparison for that? The writings of Plato, which nobody questions today, you know how many copies of that we have? Copies, not originals. Seven. That's it. Seven. How about Homer's The Iliad? Everybody studies it in school. 650. We've got over 6,000 New Testament. Caesar and all his wars. You know how many copies we have? Ten. That's it. Nobody questions Caesar's wars. And what I'm trying to do is assure you. You see, praise the Lord, we do have that. But because they copied by hand, what happened is often notes were made in the margins. And the note was probably based on verse 7. You'll see that in a moment. There was a superstition of the day. And that's probably how when a scribal note was made, it eventually got copied into the text. So verses, all of verse 4 and the end of verse 3, really, we believe there's no good support for that. So it should read, in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Now down to verse 5. And a certain man was there who had been sick 38 years in this sickness. That's amazing. We don't know who the man is. Never gives us the name. But he's sick for almost four decades. 38 years. And what happens? Verse 6. Jesus brings this question to him. Jesus saw him lying there. He knew that he had already been a long time in that condition. Now, by the way, how did he know that? Some have debated that he asked people around him. That's a possibility. I do think it's a good translation, the word knew, because the root of that word is from knowledge. I think he probably knew it just of in his sovereignty, just because he was God. But he could have inquired. The text doesn't make that clear to us, but he knew. And he knew this man was sick for 38 years. And yet he chose this one man out of all. Did you remember that? 
Verse 3, the multitudes. We talk about this world and everybody is saved. Really? There are few who come to Christ. There are few that find the way. That's why we need to bring out the gospel. There are many that are following the broad path. There are many that are finding the road that leads to destruction. He gives us this, this example of one man who is absolutely, again I repeat it, helpless and hopeless. Doesn't that remind you of 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Mark it in your notes, verses 26 to 29. God has chosen the foolish ones of this world, not many mighty, not many noble. So you guess what? If you're saved, guess who you are? Probably foolish. Maybe some of you are noble and mighty, but most of us are not. But God's chosen us. What tremendous force. God reaches out. And I want to say something just briefly right here, again, by way of personal challenge to you. Who are you looking out for? Sometimes we make judgments. This person's a good candidate for salvation. This person's a good candidate for salvation. Listen, preach the word of God. Let God do the saving. You know why? Because sometimes the people you look at and don't think are worthy of even speaking to are the very ones that Christ is going to save. Bring them the gospel. This man for four decades. This man's frustrated. And what have you got? You got the cure in verses 7 through 9. Let's look there. This man is frustrated. He's desperate. How do we know that? Verse 7. This sick man answered him after the Lord said to him, Do you wish to be well? By the way, doesn't that sound like a little silly question? I don't know. I would have thought, if somebody said that to me, I would have turned around and said, Are you kidding? What do you think I'm sitting here for? I'm sitting here because I want to be healed. Why are you asking me if I want to be healed? Jesus knew his real condition, his heart. This man certainly, as he says in verse 7, he says, I have no man to put me into the pool. And that was a superstition of the day. We know that because even Tertullian, and some of you know that name, who was a father, early church father, he spoke of it, and he says this, that an angel, it was the custom that people believed that an angel, and that's where you get that insert from the marginal, probably in verse 4, an angel stirred up the waters, and it was a first come, first serve, the first one that got in, but there is no evidence to the reality of that. That was just simply a tradition of the day. It was a superstition of the day. We find those things today, that people have superstitions and beliefs that are not true, but yet they believe them. In reality, from the evidence that we find, the pool was probably spring-fed. And what that tells us is when the spring had water flowing into it, there would be that. It would also have minerals in it. Now, some of you have been there to the Dead Sea. If you've been in the Dead Sea, there's minerals and it can do some wonders for the body. It's possible that that pool had that. We don't know. But he believed, as the other people, with this superstitious thought, that if he got put into the water and he was the first one, he would be healed. So he was frustrated. He was depressed. He was desperate. He was superstitious. And as one writer put it, and I think he did it well, he said this, and I quote, he was a prisoner without bars. No bars around him, but he couldn't do what he wanted to do. You know something? little side trip again. It is hard for us to honestly appreciate and relate to people who are handicapped. We need to understand that. People that have been sick for long periods of time and are handicapped, we need to. That's just an outside challenge. We need to be more sympathetic and helpful. There wasn't people here to help this guy. They weren't even concerned. Oh, they might have gone their way, but this person was restricted, refined, uh, confined, I mean. And these people weren't concerned at all. But I want you to notice something else. He was not only frustrated, he was not only depressed, but I want you to notice this. He was a sinner. Pastor Dan, how could you possibly say that? Would you look at verse 14? Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore. This man and his ailments 
and his disease, if you will, was in direct relationship to a sin. What sin? I have no idea. Is all sin the result of disease? Please listen carefully. It is on tape. Technically, yes. Why? Because it all goes back to the fall. And the reason we're in sin in the first place is disobedience from the beginning. However, not every sin that comes into your life and mine, not, um, excuse me, not all suffering, not all disease is the result of sin. We're going to see that when we get to chapter 9. That's the way they thought. That if somebody was suffering, if somebody had an ailment for a long time, it was because of their sin. Not necessarily so. But there is enough evidence in Scripture to show us, for example, Ananias and Sapphira, they died because of theirs. Chapter 11 of Corinthians, just off the top of my head, there were people that were dying because they did not take care of the Lord's table properly. So there can be situations, and he's disclosed to us in this one, and it is a continuous tense there, but, and I'll deal with verse 14 later, but I want you to be aware of that apparently this was a direct result of his sinning, and Jesus knew it. So this man is a sinner. We are all sinners and come short of the glory of God. If you're here today, beyond the physical miracle that we're talking about, you need to see that this man was in desperate need of salvation. This man was absolutely helpless and hopeless, not only physically, but spiritually. And he was a sinner, and the only one that could cure him, not only physically, but the only one that could cure him spiritually was Jesus Christ. The only one. And at the end of the message, I'll deal with verse 14. Not only was he a sinner, but he's also a complainer. They say, come on, Pastor Dan. Look at verse 7. He's blaming everybody else. I'm sick, sir, and no one, no man is here to put me into the pool. I sit here and wait, and they ignore me. I don't know. One writer said that he was probably ignored because he was a bitter, unfriendly person. Probably so. Sitting there blaming everybody else. When we know now, only because Scripture revealed it to us, that it's a direct result of his sin. I want you to see something else. Here he's got Jesus who just said to him, do you wish to be well? And he does not see in verse 7 that Jesus could heal him or possibly be a solution to his need of his heart. He doesn't see it. He doesn't say to Jesus, can you put me in? He doesn't say to Jesus, you asked me to get well, can you heal me? Mm -mm. He doesn't see it. He doesn't see the possibilities with Jesus. But Jesus sees what? That he's the only solution. And he is. Jesus Christ, according to John chapter 14, verse 6, listen to this. He is the only solution to man's sin. He is the only solution to those that are helpless. It says, Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. You can look to all the religions of the world. You can look to all the churches you want to attend. You can attend Fellowship Bible Church for all your life and never go to heaven. You've got to come to Christ. He's the one who died for sin. He's the one who brings us to Christ. Romans makes it very clear that when we were enemies of God, when we were helpless, that's what it says in Romans, when we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's what you get a picture of here. Helpless, sinner, enemy, not even recognizing who he is. And what does Christ do? Look at verse 8 and 9. Look at the cure. You know, the cure is in 8 and 9. Isn't this wonderful? Look at the action. Verse 8. Jesus said to him three imperatives. Listen, arise, take up your pallet, and walk. That's it. Spoken word. He didn't say, if you have enough faith. He didn't say to this man, there's a special formula now that you've got to go through. You've got to say a certain prayer. You've got to come to me in the back room and so forth. No. He simply spoke and said, you know what? Arise, take your bed, and go. That's it. And you'll be healed. It's that simple. He didn't say, come to a meeting at 7 o'clock. He didn't say, you know what, we got healing meetings this week. Don't sit by this pool. Come to the healing meetings. Come watch my television evangelism. He didn't say that. Right in the spot. Just like that. 
You know why? Because it's Jesus Christ and it's his spoken word that changes lives for all eternity. And he has the power to heal physically and also spiritually. When he said to creation, what? Let there be light, there was light. When he said in our text last week to the nobleman's son, your son is healed, go your way. He was healed from that very moment. When he turned around to this man and said, arise, take up your bed and walk, he was already healed. You need to see that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And by the way, pallet, let me, I probably should just take a second on that. I don't know about you, when I think of a pallet, I think of this wooden pallet that I find in stores that they pile up things on, or pallets that you pile your wood up on and burn. That's not what it is. That's why we need to check out history. And if you're thinking of that type of pallet, how could this guy ever pick that up? Right? He couldn't pick it up and carry it there. What this is, it's a straw mat. It's like if you ever go to the beach and you bring a blanket to sit on and you roll it up so you can carry it. That's what you have here. It would be a straw mat that they rolled up and carried, and he probably couldn't even carry it anyway, and people would take it from him. So you need to be thinking not in terms of a wooden pallet, but a simple straw pallet that would be rolled up so it would be easily carried, and he was sitting on that. So what he's saying to him is stand up, take that thing, roll it up, and get, up, get going. You're healed. What was the result? Watch. Two days later, he got healed. Verse 9. Is that what your Bible says? Not mine. And immediately, the man became well before he takes up his pallet. Immediately, by the spoken word of God, instantaneous, total, complete results. Total, complete results. Obvious, Pastor Dan. Think about it. 38 years, no therapy. Just let one of you break your leg. I don't wish that on you. I picked that because it happened to me in college. Many other injuries too, but I'll take the broken leg. When I broke my leg, I said, oh, they took the cast off, all right, let's go. Yeah, right, boom, bang. Why? No strength in the leg at all. Got to go to therapy. We talk about that in the church all the time. I go visit people in the hospital. When I get back from the surgery, I've got to go to therapy for two months. That didn't happen when Christ healed somebody. There was no muscle coordination that had to be worked out. Instantaneously, everything was in shape. Take up your bed. Walk right now. Don't need to call a doctor. Don't need to deal with therapy. Totally different from what we see today. Totally different from what we talk about. And you would think with that significant a thing happening, both he and the Pharisees would come to Christ. We're going to see that that's not true. But I need to address, or I would not be just with what is going on today, just a couple of things very quickly. One, number one, faith healers. I want you to see something. This is nothing like the faith healers of today, the so-called faith healers. There are people who are asking people to come to their program, to go down to their church, and you know what? I'm going to be very quick with you on something here. Just something I came across. I just sent it into the staff. This is a, a, a newer one. By the way, praise the Lord, they shut them down. But what happened, this is in Lakeland, Florida. And this guy was enormous with the following that he had. And he was a faith healer, quote, unquote. And if you want his name, his name is Todd Bentley, who liked to dress and be just like everybody else who like to appeal to the people on emotions. Well, when they get the list, and this is World Magazine, got the list of 13 names, what they found out is one of them, when they followed up on him, had died two weeks earlier. He was supposedly healed. And by the way, it's a real person. The name was Fogel. They followed up on another one called Gayla Smith, 53 years of age, and found out by the time they got in touch with her, she died. They followed up on another one with Phyllis Mills, of Trinity, North Carolina, who went down to this guy to be healed, found out when they contacted the parents she had passed away. These are all people that faith healers are claiming on their list got healed at their meetings. Or they'll say, you don't have enough faith. That's not what you've got here. What you've got here is absolutely instantaneous, on the spot, full recovery by the spoken word of God. 
Why? Because it was to authenticate Christ. Let me address one other one very quickly. A bunch of enemies by the time I'm done today. Today's controversy, what is that? The whole concept of the medical industry and doctors and divine healers. These cases are all over our news, folks. It is the concept of religious beliefs whereby we deny to people to have medical attention. Now, I'm not talking about alternative medicine. I'm talking about there are parents who are denying it to their children, and it's making the news. And they deny it because they feel a transfusion shouldn't be proper or whatever. And that, this could take three or four messages, but I won't. Let me deal with it this way, just to give you some, a summary and advice when you see this healing of Jesus. Number one, parents do have the responsibility and the right to make a decision for their children. It rests with the parents. But parents take it seriously. Two, there is absolutely not one prohibition in Scripture for seeking medical advice. You won't find one. We should. Next, thirdly, we need to realize that there is alternatives to traditional there is, for example, natural treatment that can be sought. That's a good alternative if it works in a particular case. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Four, Jesus can, I hope you hear this, Jesus can and does heal. He has the power to change and he can still do the miraculous. But it is not the norm for right now. Signs and wonders, number five, are not the norm for today. You might not like hearing that, but it's true. The only time in Scripture that you'll see it as the norm was with Moses, Elijah, and Elisha, the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of the apostles, and the tribulation. Everything in between, God has the power to heal, and He sometimes does. But don't you go looking at the apostles or what Elijah and Elijah did as a basis for which you're not going to get medical attention and God can heal you. You're wrong. God can heal you, yes, you're right. But there is no scriptural instruction for you to do that. My advice would be this. If you have a medical problem or your children, number one, get on your knees and pray. Number two, seek the best medical attention that you believe is right in your situation. Number three, rest in God's will. I don't have the time this morning, but it is very clear in Scripture. He doesn't will for everybody to be healed for every situation, contrary to what the healers are telling you. Four, center your focus of attention on your spiritual walk. This man, all he saw was the physical. There are people, that was why you read the responsive reading. Remember what Jesus said? You're coming to me because you got fed. You're not coming to me for who I am. You want more food. People flock to Jesus because sometimes it's our fault. What do you mean? We tell them, oh, come on to Jesus and your life will be just great. Where does it say that in the Word of God? It does say that you'll be given eternal life if you believe on Jesus. It does say that Christ will bless your life spiritually, but it also says that if you come to Christ, your life is going to be filled with tribulation. Your life, you are going to be hated because they hated me, they're going to hate you. How many of us are going out on the streets and saying that to somebody? By the way, I know you have a need and you're a sinner and you need to come to Christ. Be aware though, when you come to Christ, don't worry about counting the cross because if you do, you're going to find out you're going to have tribulations. No, we walk, we walk up to people and we say, wouldn't you like to go to heaven? I don't know of one person that if you asked if they didn't want to go to heaven is going to say, no, I'd rather go to hell. Unless they're really a fool. We need to see the seriousness. You see? Concentrate on your walk spiritually. Just to move on here, the challenge is found in verses 10 to 14 as I wrap it up. We find a little passing word at the end of verse 9 where it says, and it was the Sabbath. Now what significance is that? 
They, the religious leaders, we're going to see in verses 10 to 14, are more concerned about supposedly Jesus breaking the Sabbath than they are of this man being healed. You see, the miracle didn't bring them to him. They were focused on their tradition. They were focused on the violation of the Sabbath. Let me tell you something, and it's a personal opinion. I made it clear on that, personal opinion. I personally believe that this miracle is more of a fulfillment of the Sabbath than it is a breaking of the Sabbath. You say, I don't understand, Pastor Dan. The Sabbath was made for man. Clearly says that in Scripture. If you want a reference, Mark chapter 2. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. When man was told not to work, the concept was going to work on a job. The traditionalists had added all of their list of things to it. They added to the Word of God. And the reason I say it was a fulfillment, the idea of the Sabbath was for the benefit of man so that man could rest, so that man could be rejuvenated. That's exactly what happened to this man. This man was healed. He was given true rest physically. He is able to now get a benefit on the Sabbath day. You'll find Jesus Christ purposely chose the Sabbath day several times to heal people. We need to be careful. You see, because if you look at verse 10, the Jews were saying, they didn't ask the man, can you picture it? The man we saw outside the window again, he comes in, and I would assume we'd all be over there. Wow, look at what God did and so forth. You know, no. They come over to him and say, who did this? Why are you carrying your bed? 38 years the guy's been sick. 38 years he couldn't walk. And they come over and you would think they would say, praise the Lord, look at you've been healed. Why are you carrying your bed? You see how foolish we are? We don't see spiritually. And it can happen to us. It happens, listen, I'll be the one to say it, it happens in legalism today. Churches are involved in legalism. We are involved in legalism individually many times by adding things to the Word of God. And it can go both ways. We come up with rules and laws which there's no scriptural support for whatsoever. And then we put the demands on people. And it gets right down into the very living of us. Listen, folks. It gets down into us dealing with music. It gets down into us dealing with dress. It gets down dealing with programs and the way people do things. And it happens on both sides. You'll have people dress up like I do and think that that's the only standard. You'll have people that will dress up and don't care the way they look and they just want to do it because that's the only standard. That's not true. We need to get back to knowing what the scriptures say. These Pharisees had it wrong. And we need to be careful. None, none of that makes you more spiritual. What makes you spiritual is coming to Christ and following Christ's methods. All the blindness of man. This man, if you look at verse 11, he didn't even know who made him well. Now you say, well, that's because of the reason that's given in verse 13, for Jesus slipped away. Wait a minute. Jesus healed the man in his presence first. And he never even took a second to say thank you. He never even turned a, turned a second to say, who are you? And then by the time Jesus was gone, he couldn't find him. You see, ungrateful. He got what he wanted. He was healed physically. I can't tell you the number of times that I have gone to the hospital, and I'm sure Pastor Stringer could attest to this, gone to the hospital, because he's had the experience, and had people who were very sick, unsaved I'm talking about, and said, oh, if God will just please deliver me out of this, I'll be in church, Pastor Dan. I'll be reading my Bible all the time. It has had, happened countless times to me, and I'm done with them. I pray with them, and I never see them again. God delivers them out of the circumstance. All we want is to get out of the situation. That's what happened to this guy. Here's something for you to think about this morning. Why are you coming to Jesus? Because of all the benefits you get? There is a lot. Eternal life, forgiveness of sins, tremendous. But it should be because he loved you. And now you're coming to him because you love him. And what it means to come to him is listen to this one big word we love to give our children. Obey. Obedience. Obedience. This man didn't recognize 
I won't turn there. Time's gone on me. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It says, foolish man, don't you know that the goodness of God, I'm summarizing it, is to bring you to repentance? God blesses your life. If God's blessing your life in this auditorium right now, it's so that you understand who he is. And if there's sin in your life, it might cause you to get on your face and on your knees and thank God and turn to him and be grateful for what he's doing. Man sees the benefit and what he wants is more, more. The real need is found in verse 14, and that's salvation. Where do you see that, Pastor Dan? Look at the verse. It says, after these things, Jesus found him in the temple. Why? He went looking for him. He knew where he was. He had pulled this man aside. And we see that the man had now become well. And he says, stop sinning. It not only tells us why he was sick, but what do you mean stop sinning? Let the word of God teach us that. What does he say? that nothing worse shall befall you. We bounce over that like it's not even there. Think about it. What could be worse than for four decades not being able to walk, not being able to be healed, not being able to have anybody interested in helping you, and to be frustrated all your life? What could be worse than that? I'll tell you what could be worse. Hell fire. That's it. That's why I say in this text, he got the healing physically and he didn't get the message. If this guy was saved, all he would have had to say to him now is follow me. But he had to say, you better stop sinning because the worst thing will come. Why? Christ has paid the penalty for sin. All he saw was the physical aspect. All he saw. And the only thing that can befall is the lake of fire, and that's Revelation chapter 20. And by the way, we're in Revelation. We'll be there tonight. Not in that passage, but in chapter 9. What could be worse than that? Hell. What are you searching for? If you're here today without Christ, and you've heard about Christ, or maybe you haven't heard about Christ, and you're just going to church, and you've been religious because you know that God exists. And by the way, you're going to hear more about this in future messages. But listen, let me just take a second on that tangent. We are very fast moving to an agnostic society. And one step further to atheism, even in the United States of America. Listen, you parents, young children are growing up. Talk to the people on your streets, and they are not sure whether God even exists. That's agnostics. And most are getting to the place they don't believe that he does exist. That's atheism. When I was young and even unsaved, we went to church. Today, young people are growing up partying, not thinking about church, unless they're forced to go. Think about where we're going. We need to see that if you're searching for Christ just to get something, Christ is the answer, and he can heal just like that. But he really came out of God's love, John 3.16. So that whosoever would believe in him should not perish. Where? In the lake of fire. But have everlasting life. Young or old in this room, you will face death. Are you ready for that? You say, I hope so. Well, then you're not. Do you want to be healed? Yes, I do then the only healing is found in Jesus Christ because there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Come as a repentant person, realizing you're a sinner. You can't be good enough. Only through Jesus Christ can you come to salvation. Only through his work. He satisfied the righteousness of God in dying on the cross, going to the grave, and ra being raised from the grave. Now the issue is faith in him. If you're looking just for the physical, this man got it and didn't get the point. What about those of you who have trusted in Christ? What is the application here? Again, I hope you see why he chose this miracle here a little bit. This man was selected out. He had nothing to offer. He was hopeless. He was helpless. So were you. So was I. But God in his grace reached down to the likes of them. He's reached down to the likes of me and the likes of you. Praise God for the salvation. 
Now what do we do? Take the same exhortation of verse 14. Go and sin no more. Walk in obedience. For he who has called us is holy, therefore be ye holy as he's holy. That doesn't mean you can't enjoy what's in this world. I do. But enjoy the pleasure of walking with Christ. Don't go look for the world to satisfy you. When you're in the world and you're getting satisfaction, look to the one who created it and realize that God is blessing you so you might see more of him. No wonder Christ said when he returns, will there be faith on the earth? Even professing Christians today are so drifting away from the things of God, are so drifting away from reading his word. Let me challenge you today, believer. When's the last time you read the word of God? You say, I love God. Have you read his word? When's the last time you spent 15 minutes alone in prayer with God, telling him how much you love him and asking him for guidance in your life and thanking him for what you provide? I'm talking to believers. And you say you are a Christian? When's the last time you shared the word of God with a lost soul? That's what we're here to do. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God, we see the miraculous hand of God is absolutely staggering. To see that someone who for 38 years could do nothing, and yet just by your spoken word they could stand up and walk. We see your power. But greater than your power, even over creation, is the power of a man's hearts. Where you can reach down into our heart and know our very need, know that we are sinners, and out of your love send Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins, so that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I pray that if there be one soul in this room that has not come to Christ, that, Father, you'd help them to see Jesus Christ as more than a healer, more than a person who can meet the physical, but the only one who can meet the spiritual, the only one who can satisfy the righteousness of God, and that they might believe on him. As believers, help us not to just come to Christ for the benefits of what he can provide for us, but those of us who you've chosen who you've selected out of the world, who have brought to salvation. Help us to remember that we were helpless, hopeless, frustrated, maybe religious, but without God in the world. And you reached down and saved us. And help us to come to you in love. Help us to walk in obedience. That, Father, we might represent you as light in this world. That we might be ready to tell others about the hope that lieth in us so that they too might come to Christ and to know the great Savior that we serve. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.